be with you all on this Lord's Day. And uh, let me just begin this morning. Well, first of all, if you want to grab your Bibles and turn in them to the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, as you're turning there, just a, a brief apology to Dewey. <laughs> uh, you may have noticed in the call to worship, um, it was kind of a downer because we read 1 Corinthians 15, 56, and uh, I forgot to put and 57. <laughs> Uh, so we read, the sting of sin is death, and the power of sin is the law. What you didn't hear was, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. So, sorry, Dewey, for that. But now you got, the, he was wondering about it. It's like, what? This is, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, but we are uh, moving on through our series, through the entire Bible, one book. At a time for every uh, every sermon, it took us two sermons. It took me two sermons um, last time to get through the book of Romans, uh, but we are in First Corinthians, and I think we can do it. I think we can do it in one sermon today. But I'm going to begin by reading um, out of First Corinthians chapter one, starting in verse four. First Corinthians one four. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, have the privilege of coming under your word this morning, uh, as we have the privilege of hearing words of life, I pray that we would receive it as such, that what we learn today, what we receive uh, from your word would change our hearts, that it would remind us to the, of the great calling to which you have called us in Christ Jesus, that it would remind us of all the glorious riches that have been provided for us in Christ Jesus, that would remind us of the beauty of Christ Jesus and his presence among his people in the church. Lord, please do this work by your spirit now in us, we pray. We ask that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to behold the wondrous things you have prepared for us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, when would you say was the golden age of the church? When was the golden age of the church? Do you think it was maybe those who are nostalgic, maybe those who lived through it, the 1950s? Good time, church in North America anyway. Maybe it was, uh, you have to go further back to the 1800s. Maybe you've heard of events like the Great Awakening where it seemed as though the entire country was on fire for Jesus. Now, I'm only talking about America right now, so that's kind of 
self-centered of me, nationalist of me. Um, But maybe you would say, no, 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 you have to go much further back because I'm sure during the times of the early church persecution, uh, in the days before Constantine made it all about politics and made it the state religion, that was where we could find the golden age of the church. I wonder if you have ever romanticized, I actually have done this, romanticized about a time when the church just, they must have been people who acted like Jesus all the time, where worship was always sacred and reverent, where there was this unstoppable zeal for mission like we see with the Apostle Paul and where there was never any conflict, a time where the church never dealt with conflict because people were too busy praying and serving and bringing the gospel to the lost. What do you think? You think there was ever such a time? Got some heads nodding. Sounds like heaven. Sounds like heaven. So, so consider this scenario uh, this morning, if you will, if you will indulge me this morning. Imagine if you were someone who was completely... Um, The gospel was something foreign to you. The church, the the Christianity was something foreign to you. And and a a friend who you knew was a Christian invited you to experience one of their gatherings. And as you show up on that Sunday morning, you walk through the doors, you observe, kind of like it was this morning, this busy, noisy crowd, people looking like they liked each other generally and they they knew each other. And, And maybe it's a bit overwhelming, but... As your friend begins to take you around and introduce you to some of the people of the church, you begin to make observations and take notes. What is this? What is this all about? But then all of a sudden, to your shock, you hear someone raising their voice. They seem to be a little bit boisterous, a little bit disruptive, and it appears like they're chewing someone out. They're dressing someone down. And from what you can gather, uh, someone in the church had hired someone else as a contractor to do some work on his house. And it seems the man took his money but did not complete the work and refuses to give it back. And so the other says, I'll see you in court. Well, that was a little awkward, but you you kind of shrug it off because after all, what group does not have their crazy uncles? Uh, And this just must have been an example of that. So the next thing you do is you head over to the coffee Area And uh, there you're welcomed by some really friendly folks, so a welcome team who seem to have been there a while and seem very happy to see you. But then as you're getting your coffee and you're talking, you notice a man walks up and begins to flirt and make advances toward one of the ladies in the coffee area. So you assume, oh, they must be married. Until another lady comes quickly behind, grabs him by the arm, and whisks him away from his seat and begins to give him a little peace of her mind. Okay, that was really awkward. Now things are beginning to get um, a little suspicious. But now it seems that the service is beginning. So we're coming out of the foyer. We're coming into the the main gathering here. And as you sit down, you notice, uh, like we do once a month, there is a a table uh, in the middle of this gathering. On this table, you notice uh, what appears to be bread and some wine or some some juice, uh, and it looks like maybe we're going to participate in some kind of meal throughout the course of this gathering. Only what you notice is there seems to be 
a rather large group of well-to-do looking people gathering around this table, helping themselves to the drinks, stuffing their mouths with the food, carousing, getting a bit boisterous, and you're looking around at other people still sitting in their seats, and some of them looking a little bit lost, a little bit left out. People who maybe don't look as well-to-do as those who are in the in-crowd gathered around the table. So by now, you're starting to get very anxious. And by now, you're starting to wonder, where is the pastor going with all of this? (laughs) But not wanting to offend, you resolve you are going to stick it out. And after a few announcements by someone like Kelly and some song leading by someone like Chris, a very sincere and confident man stands up and begins to address everyone. He begins to teach you about a man named Jesus. A man from Nazareth, a man who was also God, who left heaven and came to the earth to save the world from their sin, including your sin. This man was hung on a cross. He was rejected for what he said, and he was brutally killed. But everything that he spoke, this, this, this preacher is claiming, was true, and it gives life to all who will hear it and receive it. And after he died to confirm that he was God, he rose from the dead. He conquered the grave to confirm that this was the one in whom there is life and that all would follow him, would receive it. That message in the midst of all of the busyness, the craziness going around you begins to draw you in. It is compelling this message. Maybe there is something to what he is about, what he is telling me. And after all, my life is pretty messed up. Who am I to look at these people around me and think that I'm somehow better? And so you begin to consider his words carefully. Just as you are entering this time of deeper reflection, someone else decides to stand up in the middle of the service And shout out, well, I think what he actually was trying to say, and then utter something completely indistinguishable in a language you've never heard, and says, you can be sure that this is what is true because I am the real prophet here. Okay, I got to get out of here as quickly as I can. You breathe a sigh of relief. It appears the meeting is dismissed. You run into the hallway hoping that no one will talk to you on the way out. But even as you're on the way out, you hear the post-game banter. You hear somebody talking about how much they love that preacher and someone else debating and saying he's not nearly as good as the one we had last week. And someone says, well, I'm with him. And the other says, well, yeah, but I follow this other guy. It's just at this moment that your friend says to you, hey, what are you doing for lunch? I got a friend who's having a little seance party at the local temple. Uh, She said we're welcome to join her for the meat that we can enjoy from the animal sacrifices that they're bringing. All right, admittedly, this would be the strangest morning of your life, would it not? And yet still, you just can't seem to shake off what that man had said about this Jesus who came to save the world. You ready to come back next week? Well, this was, what, what am I doing by setting it up like this? This was 
Albeit with a little bit of modernization and a, a bit of artistic license, this was all inspired by all of the chaos that is going on in the church in Corinth. The ones to whom Paul is writing the letter to 1 Corinthians. So in case you are wondering if there has ever been a golden age in the church, and if perhaps that means the very, you have to go back to the very beginning, no, no. There has never been that idyllic golden age. Like Bethany said earlier, that's when we get to heaven. Listen as I just read off. I'm just going to read off the headings, some of the headings that take us all the way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And maybe you can follow along in your Bible to see some of these same headings. So these are some in my Bible. Um, after the greeting and the thanksgiving, the first heading, divisions in the church, followed by Christ, the wisdom and power of God and wisdom from the Spirit. Then, divisions in the church. In the ministry of the apostles. Next, sexual immorality defiles the church. Lawsuits against believers. Principles of marriage. Food offered to idols. Paul surrendering his rights. Followed by warnings against idolatry. Followed by, do all to the glory of God, only to be followed up with correcting abuse of the Lord's Supper. And then we have spiritual gifts, the way of love, orderly worship, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I have yet to see the Hollywood version of the film, 1 Corinthians. But I can assure you this, when it comes out, my kids will not be allowed to watch it. <laughs> and so I've entitled this sermon today, Gospel Power for Messy People, or Gospel Power for Messy Churches, Gospel Power for Messy People. You don't have to show your hands this morning, please don't, but how many of you would consider yourselves messy people. I would include myself in that number. But what happens when the message of Jesus Christ takes root in the heart of someone who has for so long been so formed by the ways of the world, so deeply entrenched in the darkness of the world? You have to understand, the church in Corinth was not a church that had been planted by 5th, 6th, 7th generation Christians. These were people who were fully and wholly entrenched in a culture that was utterly godless, at least godless in the sense of worshiping our God, utterly pagan, utterly given over to whatever the passions of their flesh led them to do. And here they were, having come to hear about this man, Jesus Christ, and what it means to have life in him for the first time. You see, when Christians are transferred from the domain of darkness of this world and brought into the light of the kingdom of heaven, it can sometimes look really messy. 
It can sometimes look far more messy than we really think it ought to be. Jesus, after all, said he came not for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Jesus came not for the healthy, because the healthy have no need for a doctor, but he came for the sick. You see, coming to Christ is about coming as you are, right? Coming to Christ is coming as you are with all your messiness and with all of your baggage. And yet, while it is truly a come as you are faith, it can never be a leave as you were faith. Did you catch that? Christianity is come as you are, but it can never be if you are truly changed by Christ, leave as you were. To come to Christ is to change. In fact, if you just skipped over to uh, chapter 6, verse 9, you'd see this. Uh, We'll get to it a little bit later, but Paul says there, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, everything that you built your life around, church in Corinth, prior to knowing Christ. Here he says in verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were set apart. You're devoted to the Lord. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. To come into the presence of Christ is to be changed forever. As Paul will put it toward the end of this letter in in chapter 13, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man... I put away childish things. The same can be said for our lives before Christ and our lives with Christ. The old man dies and the new has come. So 1 Corinthians is really a loud megaphone call to saved sinners to remember what it means to be a saint. A loud call to saved sinners to remember just who I am. I've been called. I've been set apart by Christ. I have been called to this new way of life. He says in the very greeting, chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now think about all the things you just heard that were going on in this church, all the craziness. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He says further on down in verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. A reminder of the power we have been given in Christ power for messy people. So here's what I want to do this morning in the time we have left. For every lamentable condition of the church in Corinth, 
I want to show you how Paul's aim is to address the problem, address what's going on, not by mere behavior modification, not merely by saying, stop acting like that, knock it off, do this instead, but how Paul's aim in addressing every problem is really just to remind them what Christ has already done for them and what it means to have Christ living in them. And it should be the same for us. In fact, every morning when we gather, every Sunday morning, and the word is preached, and we come together in the fellowship, it should be a reminder, oh yes, I am in Christ. Christ died to put away sin, therefore I want to be done with sin. I am a, I'm a child of God, this is what I've been called to. So this is how Paul is going to address every problem uh, within the church. I heard this just last night driving home from Kansas City uh, on a podcast. Somebody made a quote that said, um, I think it was saying like the Christian faith is, is oftentimes a form of amnesia and deja vu at the same time. Because we say, I know I've forgotten this before. And I feel like every Sunday uh, as we're coming together and we hear God's word, it's like, yeah, I know I've, I know I've forgotten that. Uh, before. Well, Paul is going to remind us who we are in Christ, but it's going to look really ugly as he's addressing each of these problems. So number one, uh, and you would see it in one of these first headings here, divisions in the church. Have you ever been a part of a divided church? I've been a part of a divided church. It's some of the most painful experiences that you can go through to have the people that you love together and yet not be together in so many ways. One of the main reasons why Paul has to address divisions in the church in Corinth is because the thing people are dividing over is the preacher that they like best or the leader in the church that they feel most comfortable following. People are beginning to say, well, I follow Paul. This is in verse 12 of chapter 1. I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, uh, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Who they like best has led them to a form of tribalism, a form of breaking up the church into different Factions, and, and I know uh, it's maybe hard, and it's, it's hard for me to kind of think about what is the modern day parallel to this, because um, I don't think you guys are thinking, I follow Davey, I follow Mike, I follow uh, Chris. But I, I have seen this uh, in, in smaller pockets of Christianity where some people will be like, well, I, I follow John MacArthur. Uh, or, or, you know, I'm more of a, a Francis Chan guy. I follow Francis Chan or somebody's a, I listen to Charles Stanley on the radio. And so you need to listen to what he has to say. Or maybe it's, it's David Jeremiah or somebody else. Uh, but in this case, in the church in Corinth, it was causing the church to be fractured. And this is happening today in the church at large. It may not be happening right here at Center, but it's certainly happening in the church at large, the temptation to follow men and to not follow the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so Paul's cure for this, his counter to this, is to say, I have intentionally tried to focus my message exclusively on proclaiming Christ crucified 
so that you will not be somehow taken in by my clever wisdom, my eloquent speech. I preach a very simple message that he says, to those who don't get it, it's foolishness. I mean, to walk on the streets of uh, Boston, uh, to, be, to be in ha- ha- Harvard, Harvard Yard, <laughs> and to walk up to somebody and say, did you know that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he rose from the grave? There's a good chance that out of their intellectualism, they will just laugh and scoff at you. And yet Paul knows this is the power of God for salvation. And so the temptation is always to try to sound smarter, to try to gain a hearing. But in Paul's case, he's saying, The demonstration of the spirit and power is in the message itself. Jesus died for our sins. God raised him from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And what I love about this message is that um, my daughter, a nine-year-old, understands it. Um, At least at at a level where she gets the fact that, I can't be saved apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And yet some of the most intelligent, wise by the world standard people have no clue what it means. And so Paul says that any time we try to to philosophize or to cleverly impress or to attach our message to something other than Christ, what we actually do is we empty the cross of its power. Oh, I love that expression. I mean, I don't love the idea of emptying the cross of its power, but I I love the idea that when we preach, our primary aim up here must be to present to you Christ crucified for your sins, Christ risen from the grave, Christ conquering the power of sin in your life, lest we empty it of all its power. There are churches gathered all over the world right now on a Sunday morning that will not tell you anything about Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, who won't even talk about sin because it might offend and they are emptying the cross of its power. It's vanity to do this. And so Paul is saying, don't look at men, don't look at what what everyone else is saying, keep your focus on Christ and that will prevent 99% of the divisions that are in the church. If we are gospel people, if we are cross-centered people, we will find glorious and beautiful union together in Christ. Next issue that he addresses. So divisions in the church, number one. Number two, the issue of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. And he first addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and then it shows up again um, in chapter 6. So it's clear that in the church in Corinth, there seems to be a problem of understanding God's design for marriage, God's design uh, for sexuality. And he says that in this particular instance, 1 Corinthians 5, um, there is a sexual scandal going on in the church that is of a nature that even the pagans would not tolerate. Something that, that even pagans would, would look and say, like, that's not right. There's something wrong with that. And yet he says that by the church's accepting of it, by the church's refusing to deal with it, it's as if they're somehow 
wanting to brag about the freedom they have in Christ. Because we're free in Christ, we can now do whatever we want. And Paul says, no, 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 no. As members of the body of Christ, you have been united with him. And to bring these foreign things, to introduce that into the body, is going to tear you and to tear other people away from seeing Christ as he truly is. Again, his answer is to remind them what they've been called to in, as, as ones who are in Christ Jesus. And so the way he addresses this is he says that sexual sin in the church is like leaven. And what happens with leaven? You put a tiny, tiny, tiny bit of leaven in a batch, and what does it do? It spreads throughout the whole to affect the whole thing. Once it's in the batch, that impurity is going to spread and spread and spread until it has corrupted the whole. And he references here the Passover. Uh, and that might be a little bit confusing and requires a, a little bit of explanation, but basically during the week of Passover, one of the things that the Jewish people would do is they would try to look for any little bit of leaven in their house and they would remove it from their house. They would make sure that there was no leaven left in their home. And so he makes this illustration to what our life is like as the body of believers in Christ. And he says, you church, in the same way, need to cleanse out that old leaven, whatever is going to tear down, whatever is going to make impure the whole body, the whole batch. Because Christ, our Passover lamb, has already been sacrificed. Therefore, we no longer do the things we once did in our former life. Christ died for those sins, and we, therefore, should rid them from, from among us. He says, if you continue to sin boldly in this way, if you continue to obscure what Christ has provided for you, you are denying his sacrifice. You are denying Jesus. Therefore, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Expel the unrepenter, unrepentant sinner from the church in order that the church might be preserved and protected and continue to be a witness to the glories of Christ. Not only that, but so that the sinner would be outside the church and understand the destructiveness of his choice and that he is no longer compatible with this body of Christ. It's in 1 Corinthians 5. I love to quote this to those who want to quote as their favorite Bible verse. Do not judge lest ye be judged. Paul says... In verse 12, chapter 5, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. You are Christ's church. You belong to Christ. You are his temple in the sense that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Your bodies, he said, are, says, are members of Christ. You were bought with a price. Don't obscure the beauty of Christ by encouraging and indulging in impurity within the body. 
Sexual immorality. What's the cure? Remember who you are in Christ. Number three, lawsuits among believers. Now, this one admittedly is a little bit strange to me. Uh, I personally have not had any experience with somebody, uh, one member of the church suing another. Maybe anybody here had an experience um, like that. Maybe it happens in more <laughs> in more subtle ways in the sense that we uh, get upset and we refuse to deal peaceably with one another. We refuse to be reconciled to one another. And we just kind of accept the fact that we'll let the world settle this. We'll let the world figure this out. What would cause a believer in the church to want to bring suit against another? Paul says that it's demonstrating an inability to resolve issues in the ways that Christ has provided for us as a church to resolve them. Through truth, through reconciliation, through love, to bring before the courts of the world what we should be able to deal with as Christians because Christ has dealt with us in the way of love and forgiveness and peace. To bring that before the world, to bring that before the courts is to deny what Christ has done for us. It's to deny that he is able, he is the one who is able to bring about true peace. Look at how Paul puts it in chapter 6, verse 7. He says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? How many of us think like that? Oh yeah, I'm just willing to, to suffer that wrong. I'm willing to be defrauded. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Then he says again in verse 11, this is what you used to be like, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and here's the key here, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. The answer again is remember what Christ has done for you. If you are tempted to be in conflict with another member in Christ's body because of sin, because of the way that they have maybe mistreated you, maybe the way you've been shown injustice, what did Christ do for you? You were a rebel. You rejected him. You hurled insults at him. By your sin, you put him on the cross. It was your sin that led to his death. And in that death, he went to the cross in order to reconcile you to God. So who are you, church, to deny that same forgiveness, that same peace, that same love to another because you are upset or because you feel you've been treated unfairly? Number four, the number four problem that we see in the church in Corinth is the problem of idolatry. Idolatry. Paul understands that one of the biggest Hindrances to the growth of the church in Corinth, the spiritual growth, is this deeply entrenched practice of idolatry. Remember, uh, the culture, not like ours, the culture was one where they would have worshipped foreign little G gods. They would have gone to temples. They would have offered 
uh, various types of sacrifices to try to appease these gods. So what this means is that because it kind of permeated throughout the entire culture, social events would have been quite naturally organized in some ways around these same types of allegiances. So what that means is Christians would have found themselves in many circumstances, not unlike today really, where they were going to have to navigate how do we maintain familial connections, how do we maintain certain friendships without participating in their evil. Has anybody ever felt the the tension uh, there in certain circumstances today? How do I continue as a Christian to participate in certain things that my family uh, still values or that my friends still value that that I feel are actually forms of of evil? Ice cream truck never fails. It's the evil one trying to distract us this morning. So back then, uh, it may have been a god or goddess of fill in the blank. That may have been the idolatry that they were tempted to fall back into. It doesn't look like God's going to provide this week for our our finances, but uh, maybe, you know, there is that that god of, of... of the harvest over here. Maybe, maybe we could pray to that, that little G God and, and then, then we've kind of got it in with both gods and hopefully uh, we'll get what we want. Uh, that's how it looked in their day. Idolatry, like actual foreign gods. But today, it may look a little bit different. It may look more like the idol of our careers or the idolatry of pursuing wealth or the idolatry of sport or the idolatry of embracing the world's sexual ethic, or the idolatry of just taking in mindlessly profane entertainment. What do I do when I find myself in a situation where it may feel unloving not to go along with what my friends or my family is doing? Or what do I do when the demands of my career the thing I've gotten myself so deeply entrenched into, or maybe my children's activity of choice, what happens when those things have no regard for my faith in Christ? They have no regard for the priority of of corporate worship on, on Sundays. What do I do when I'm pulled along by those little idols? I'm not saying any of these in and of themselves must be Idols, but we all know how much we can begin to so worship our career, so worship our children, so uh, worship our pursuit of wealth, so worship some activity or hobby that it begins to pull our affections away from Christ. What do I do when I'm, I'm at a friend's house and they bust out the thing that I know that was a part of my former life and I cannot be okay with that now that I am in Christ, it's not glorifying to Christ. Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20 and 21. We'll back up here to verse 19. He says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? So Paul's saying, I know that those aren't real. I know there's, there's these little G-gods aren't real. So if there's food offered to that, then I, I reject it as such. 
But he says this, no, I imply that what pagans, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And I think what Paul is referring to here is a form of, of syncretism. This idea that when we say, Jesus, the Lord, is our master, I am partaking in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. He is now my Lord. Once we say that, to then make our career a God, or to make our children's activities a God, or to make wealth a God, that is chasing after the God of this world. That is, in a sense, chasing after the evil one, being pulled, being, having your heart pulled along by someone other than Christ. And he says, you cannot do that. You cannot serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. So resolve now, who is your Lord? Are you a participant in Christ? But Paul also recognizes, and, and time probably prevents us from exploring this any further, but he does recognize that there may be times when you find yourself in situations where your freedom in Christ may allow you to eat or to drink or to participate in certain activities, and it's not a matter of idolatry for you because you're free in Christ and that no longer has a, a hold on you anymore. But... Just because you have that freedom does not give you license to just go about doing whatever you want, however you feel you should do it, because now you have been called into a body of Christ. And there are going to be certain situations where you eating or drinking in a certain way or, or with somebody could cause someone of a weaker conscience to be distracted from Christ. Could, and we addressed this a little bit last week, I think, or the week before in Romans. But there may, there may be times when somebody is a new believer and they see you acting in a certain way that they associate with those pagan practices, their old life, and, and they say that to you. Why are you doing this? What is the key principle when you face those types of situations? Is it to just go ahead and do it and say, I'm free in Jesus, so I don't care what you think? Well, here's what Paul says. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, here's how you should do it. Do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that, that, that they may be saved. So what Paul's saying is just because you're free in Christ doesn't mean you're free to now do whatever you want. You have, now have a new principle. Is the way that I am acting, is the decision that I'm making serving to point others to Christ? Is it serving to glorify God or is it serving to just glorify myself? Number five, abuse of the Lord's Supper. Again, this one is going to sound strange to us. The idea that you could come to the Lord's table and get drunk and make it into a big party and others are getting left out. But what's going on here in this day is this is um, the way that they used to gather. They called these love feasts and they would come together around a meal and they would share in a meal together. And the service was kind of integrated with this big fellowship meal. 
So there was plenty of opportunity to eat and drink. And what was happening in the church of Corinth is they were showing up and they were indulging in the food and indulging in the drink and even getting drunk off of it. And the ones who were in the in crowd were not paying attention any longer to the ones who were outsiders or on the fringe or didn't have as much social status. And he says the very, the very table in which they're doing this is the one that has been instituted by Christ Jesus to be a memorial of his death for the forgiveness of sins. So it's not that just that they're being selfish and uncaring, they are obscuring the cross of Christ. They're obscuring the cross of Christ, which is, supposed, is meant to call out to lost sinners, all who come to me will never be cast out. And which reminds believers that we are all one in Christ Jesus. That all who would come to Christ, all who would come to this table, will receive freely from me living water that will satisfy your thirst, the thirst of your spirit, forever. So again, what is the answer to the sin in the church in Corinth? Don't magnify yourself. Don't indulge yourself. Magnify Jesus. Finally, number six, they were using spiritual gifts and they were turning them into a means for status and self-worth. They were using spiritual gifts and they were turning them into something about status and self-worth within the church. I like to think of 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. Uh, almost like Paul is addressing a group of really young children who have just discovered a really cool new piece of technology. Uh, this technology has the power to change the world. It has the power to do a lot of really cool things. But whenever it is abused, whenever it is in the wrong hands, whenever it is not understood properly, it can also be used to tear people down and to tear people apart. And so some are, are speaking in tongues because that is their gift and, and some are prophesying and, and, and doing all kinds of different things, but they're doing it in a way that is drawing attention to themselves and actually dividing the body of Christ. Again, where does Paul go for his corrective? Paul reminds him that the spirit in you, the spirit in us, the body of Christ, is what makes us the dwelling place of God. The fact that we have all been brought together like we have here at Center Baptist Church means that the spirit in his wisdom has chosen to bring us together for a very particular purpose. And in, verse, in chapter 12, verse 7, he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So why do we receive spiritual gifts? We receive spiritual gifts for the common good. In verse 18, he says, As it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. The fact that the Spirit dwells among us and the Spirit has gifted us tells us that we are meant to come together to build one another up in Christ. 
not to brag about the various gifts that we've been given, also not to discount the fact that we may feel we have been given less of a gift than someone else, because he says, to each has been given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. They are here, they are there, the gifts have been put there to build up the body of Christ. And here is the beautiful picture that he shows us in chapter 12, starting in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. In, my, in, in the membership class here, I sometimes call this God's click prevention program. To see that all of us have been given a variety of gifts and no single gift is more important than the other, but we are to come together and to use them together and to work in ways that bring glory to Jesus Christ, our head. And I think this should also be massive motivation for us to regularly gather with God's people. Because if the purpose of our gifts is to build up the body of Christ, who are we to remove ourselves from the body of Christ? To the person who says, well, well my faith is just between God and me, right? No, you're robbing the people that he has called together for you to be with in order to build one another up. And guess what? They've been put there to help build you up in Christ as well. This is a community project in every way. Now, again, the Corinthians were thinking of their gifts as status symbols. They were using them to be recognized and to, to sort of puff themselves up. But the answer, Paul says, how should we use our gifts? What's the answer? The answer is love. How simple is that? All you need is love. But not just in the abstract, not just lovey-dovey, whatever the world defines as love. Love as defined and modeled by Christ himself. The same love with which he loved you, a vile sinner, when he left heaven for the cross to save you. This kind of love, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices, rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Christ's gifts to his church 
And if you are in Christ, he has given all of you a gift to use in the context of the body of Christ. Christ's gifts ought to be employed in the same manner that Christ loved his church. They ought to be employed in the same, his gifts to the church ought to be employed in the same manner of his love for the church in order to take hold of his vision for the church. His vision being a radiant, blameless, glorifying, glory-reflecting witness to the world. The gospel is for sinners who have been called to be saints. And you, Christian brother or sister, have also been set apart by the blood of Christ. You have been set apart as the body of Christ. You have been set apart from the world. You have been set apart to be his witness to the world. And when you take your eyes off of him, it can get messy really fast. Maybe we don't have the same problems that they had in the early church in Corinth, but I guarantee you we have plenty of messy problems that can become a major distraction to people coming to see Christ for who he really is. The church has always been messy, right? Because of the nature of who we are. We are sinners redeemed from darkness and called into the light. We bring baggage into the church. Saying you don't want to be a part of the body of Christ because of all the messiness is like saying you don't want to join a gym because there are fat people there. And I didn't come up with that. I saw it on Facebook. We're all here because we need Christ, right? And the answer should never be, you failed, you didn't measure up, so get out. But the answer can also never be, oh, it's okay. Just come in here the way you are and stay just the way you are. Both of those are misrepresentations of the gospel. The answer, rather, is Christ died for that sin. Let him forgive you and let him purge you of it. Let him forgive you and then let him take, him, take you and make you more like him. Come as you are, but do not leave as you were. And so after addressing all the sin in the church, where do you think Paul comes back to for his final reminder? If you look in chapter 15, here's what he says. His final words to the church in Corinth. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance. What is first importance in the church? I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And he goes on and on to unpack the gospel there. And he closes by making this impassioned plea to believe and to hope in the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Because only by believing that God can raise the dead can you understand that he is able to raise you from the dead and give you the power to be something new. 1 Corinthians 15, 34, he says, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. 
For some of you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. If you have been raised, then live in Christ. Then live unto Christ. If he has raised you from the dead, then live like it. And he says in 56 through 58, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, hear this, brothers and sisters. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Could you imagine that if we, church, took that imperative literally? Like if we actually believed that and strived to be that, to do that at all times, always abounding in the work of the Lord, I can guarantee you it would stave off about 99.9% of the problems, divisions, conflicts, immorality, impurity in the church if we were always abounding in the work of the Lord. So brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is never in vain.